with milk and honey. I show you a god of gold. Come with me. Follow me. Blasphemers, idolaters. For this you shall drink bitter waters. God has set before you this day his laws of life and good and death and evil. Those who will not live by the law shall die by the law. Peace be upon you. So one of the uh, practices that is supposedly attributed to the uh, pagan Arabs is a tree that they called dot and wat. Dot means possessor and wat means something that's hanging or suspended. And the reason that they called this tree that is because they used to suspend and hang their weapons on this tree, hoping that the tree would give them good luck. And there's even uh, discussions that they used to slaughter in the name of the tree, that they would devote themselves to the tree, they would bless it, glorify it, and even circulate around it, you know, almost as if it's the Kaaba. Now, in a Sahih narration from Termidi, uh, it claims that the companions of the Prophet begged the Prophet to create a dot and wat like the pagans had. And this is in a Termidi uh, 2180. Now, they say that this was on their way to Khaybar, which if this is true, this would put it in the year around 628, just a few years before the death of the prophet, and therefore put it pretty late in his prophethood. Now, I'm not bringing this up because I think there's credibility here. I, I strictly use their own sources to show if they believe this is true, then this narration actually looks really poorly on them. So it reads that uh, the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, when he went out to Khaybar, passed by a tree of the polytheists called Dot and Wat, upon which they would hang their weapons. So they, the companions said, O Messenger of Allah, make for us a Dot and Wat like they have a Dot and Wat. The Prophet said, Glory be to Allah, this is as the people of Moses said, Make for us a God as they have gods. By the one in whose hand is my soul, you will follow the sunnah of those before you. So according to this narration, the Prophet's response was to compare the request of his companions with the following verse of the Quran. This is in Surah 7, verse 138 and 139. It says, We delivered the children of Israel across the sea. When they passed by people who were worshipping statues, they said, O oh Moses, make a god for us like the gods they have. He said, Indeed, you are ignorant people. These people are committing a blasphemy, for what they are doing is disastrous for them. So this is the verse from the Quran that the Hadith is citing when it's saying that, you know, supposedly the companions were asking the Prophet to make a dot and wat, this, you know, pagan tree, so they could have one like the pagans did. And... What's interesting is that, in addition, the uh, Hadith claims that the Prophet testifies that his people are going to follow the Sunnah of those in the past. And this is understood to be the Jews and the Christians, and it's even clarified in Sahih Muslim 2669 that it says, You will tread the same Sunnah as was trodden by those before you, inch by inch and step by step, so much so that if they had entered into the hole of the lizard, you would follow them in this also. We said, Allah's Messenger, do you mean Jews and Christians by your words? Those before you? He said, who else? So 
in this hadith, it's clarifying that the sunnah that he's attributing, that his followers are going to fall into, is that of the sunnah of the Jews and Christians in the past. Now, this situation poses a rather ironic dilemma, predominantly for Sunnis, that if they believe that the hadith is true, then by their definition, their tradition is actually following that of, in this case, specifically the rabbinical Jews. And if this hadith is wrong, then their entire hadith sciences is utterly worthless. So I'm going to actually make the argument that this hadith, even though that it may be fabricated, uh, what it's stating is not far off from the truth. The Sunnis and Maz have followed the same path of those of rabbinical Judaism. Ironically, when it comes to the Shia, they followed more of the path of Roman Catholics. They have this hierarchy where they don't really care much about the uh, scripture or the uh, tradition per se. They follow the path of their imams. So in their, their case, it's more akin to that of Roman Catholics. But in the context of the Sunnis, they pick the different path. Their path is more similar to what we see in rabbinical Judaism. So in rabbinical Judaism, they believe that along with the written Torah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, he also received a secondary Torah. And this is known as the oral Torah or the oral law. While the written Torah is contained in the, obviously the written Torah we have today, the oral is contained in what's known as the Talmud. The Talmud is a central text of rabbinical Judaism and operates much like the Sunnis treat the Hadith to the Quran. It is a comprehensive record of rabbinic discussions pertaining to Jewish law, ethics, philosophy, customs, and history. The Talmud has two components. One is the Mishnah. The Mishnah was compiled around the year 200 in the Common Era, and the Mishnah is written a collection of Jewish oral laws. It organizes and categorizes the Jewish oral tradition known as the Oral Torah. The Mishnah's main purpose is to document the oral laws that interpret and explain the written Torah. The Gemara, on the other hand, was compiled between the year uh, the 3rd and 5th century. And this is commentary regarding the Mishnah. So you have the Mishnah, which is written, and then you have the, the, the Gemara, which is the commentary on this rabbinical oral law. Together, the Mishnah and the Gemara form the Talmud, a foundational source of Jewish religious law and theology. The function of the Quran is to clarify and supersede matters that have been disputed regarding the previous scriptures. When we look at the Quran, it firstly points out that Moses and Aaron were given the Kitab, which infers a written text. Secondly, the Quran not only does not mention an oral Torah, the very concept contradicts the verses of the Quran. So if the Jews are claiming that Moses actually received two scriptures, he had the written Torah and the oral Torah, not only is this absent from the Old Testament, the Quran does not corroborate the story, it goes against the story. In Surah 7, verse 145, we read about Moses. It states, We wrote for him on the tablets all kinds of enlightenments and details of everything. You shall uphold these teachings strongly and exhort your people to uphold them. These are the best teachings. I will point out for you the fate of the wicked. So again, in this passage, we only read about a written book. Ironically, the, the Quran never says that Moses or Aaron received the Torah. 
Uh, it says that they've received the Kitab. It says that they've received the Furqan. But it never says that they received the Torah. The Torah is a collection of books given to the Jewish prophets. Now, in 6154, it says, And we gave Moses the scripture, Kitab, complete with the best commandments and detailing everything, and a beacon of mercy that they may believe in meeting their Lord. So again, in this verse, in these two verses, the only thing that Moses, Aaron received was the Kitab, the written book. There is no mention of an oral law being given to them. This is a fabrication. I mean, consider how many thousands of years ago uh, Moses and Aaron received this book that it took until 200 common era before this was canonized and written down. And they're claiming that this, this is a second oral law, that it's the oral Torah. And God condemns such claims. In Surah 6, verse 93, it says, Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God? Or says, I have received divine inspiration when no such inspiration was given to him. Or says, I can write the same as God's revelations. If only you could see the transgressors at the time of death, the angels extend their hands to them, saying, let go of your souls. Today you have incurred a shameful retribution for saying about God other than the truth and for being too arrogant to accept his revelations. So the fact that they're holding up this secondary source, this oral Torah, as if it's no different than the word of God, is showing that they're thinking that they can write the same as God's revelations. And their followers who recognize that this is just the writing of men who compiled these, you know, thousands of years later, they're setting up their rabbis as lords beside God. In Surah 9, verse 31, it says, They have set up their rabbis and monks as lords instead of God. Others defied the Messiah, son of Mary. They were all commanded to worship only one God. There is no God except He, be He glorified, high above having any partners. You know, the Quran tells us that if we take source of law for our religion from anyone other than God and His revelations, we're setting up that other entity as a God beside God. So if God gave the children of Israel the Torah, which is the written compilation, but then they fabricate some oral law in addition to that, that has no foundation, that's not from God, then they're setting up these other human beings as gods beside God. Ironically, the Sunnis have done the exact same thing as the Jews in their compilation of Hadith. They claim that in addition to the written Quran, that the Prophet also received the oral law known as Hadith and his actions known as Sunnah. Additionally, the Quran condemns such secondary laws for Muslims by name, just like it did for the Jews in the past. In Surah 77, verse 50, it reads, Which Hadith other than this do they uphold? It literally uses the term Hadith. You know, God is not unaware that this was going to be the name of their corpus, that they call it Hadith. And again, in the Quran, it says that which Hadith other than this do they uphold? In Surah 45, verse 6, it says, These are God's revelations that we recite to you truthfully. In which hadith, other than God and his revelations, do they believe? So again, God is calling out those who uphold other hadith beside God and his revelations. In Surah 6, verse 114 through 116, it reads, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. 
He is the here, the omniscient. And then it says in 6.116, if you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. You know, the parallelism between what happened with the Jews where they created this oral law in conjunction with the written Torah is just like what the traditional Muslims, the Sunnis, have done with the Quran and the Hadith. So the Quran not only condemns Hadith by name, it tells us that the only source of law we are to uphold is the Quran, that anyone who judges by other than God's revelations is outside of the fold of the religion. Now the Quran uses some of the strongest language against those who rule by other than God's revelation. This addresses not only the Jews who created the Talmud, that was never authorized by God, or the Christians who followed the church fathers, who again were never authorized by God, but also the Muslims who followed the Hadith that were never authorized by God. This is because the Talmud, the church fathers, or the Hadith are not divine revelations, but only the writings of men who were never authorized by God. In Surah 5 verse 41 it reads, O you messenger, do not be saddened by those who hasten to disbelieve among those who say we believe with their mouths, while their hearts do not believe. Among the Jews, some listen to lies. They listen to people who never met you and who distorted the words out of context. Then said, if you are given this, accept it. But if you are given anything different, beware. Whomever God wills to divert, you can do nothing to help him against God. God does not wish to cleanse their hearts. They have incurred humiliation in this world, and in the hereafter, they will suffer a terrible retribution. So here's an example of God saying that there's those who claim to believe with their mouths, but their hearts are not of that of believers. And it continues in 542, it says, They're upholders of lies and eaters of illicit earnings. If they come to you to judge among them, you may judge among them, or you may disregard them. If you choose to disregard them, they cannot harm you in the least. But if you judge among them, you shall judge equitably. God loves those who are equitable. And in 543, uh, it says, Why do they ask you to judge among them when they have the Torah containing God's law and they chose to disregard it? They are not believers. So again, God is calling out that they have the scripture, but they're not upholding it. There is no mention of an oral Torah. And it continues 544. We have sent down the Torah containing the guidance and light. Ruling in accordance with it were the Jewish prophets, as well as the rabbis and priests, as dictated to them in God's scripture, and as witnessed by them. Therefore, do not reverence human beings. You shall reverence me instead, and do not trade away my revelations for a cheap price. And here's the, the, the last sentence. Those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the disbelievers. So here God is telling us, do not reverence human beings. If we're taking our laws from humans as opposed to the revelations of God, we're setting up those entities as gods beside God. And God is saying that the only revelation they had to judge by was the scripture. There was no oral law. It was just the written scripture. And it tells us that those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the disbelievers. So if there's some other source that's not God's revelations that people are judging by, that God is saying that these individuals are disbelievers. And it continues in 545, and we decreed for them in it that the life for the life, the eye for the eye, the nose for the nose, the ear for the ear, the tooth for the tooth, an equivalent injury for any injury. 
If one forfeits what is due to him as a charity, it will atone for his sins. And it says, those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the unjust. 546. Subsequent to them, we sent Jesus, the son of Mary, confirming the previous scripture, the Torah. We gave him the gospel containing guidance and light and confirming the previous scriptures, the Torah, and augmenting its guidance and light and to enlighten the righteous. The people of the gospel shall rule in accordance with God's revelations therein. Those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the wicked. So here we have the third time that it's saying this. The first time it says those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the disbelievers. Then it says those uh, who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the unjust. And now it says those who do not rule in accordance with God's revelations are the wicked. And notice every single time it's in the context of the written scripture. So we saw that it's the Torah. Then we had the Injil. Now it's going to talk about the Quran. In 548 in, uh, through 550 it reads, Then we reveal to you this scripture truthfully confirming previous scriptures and superseding them. You shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations and do not follow their wishes if they differ from the truth that came to you. For each of you, we decreed laws and different rights. Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation, but he thus puts you to the test through the revelations he has given each of you. You shall compete in righteousness to God is your ultimate destiny, all of you. Then he will inform you of everything you had disputed. You shall rule among them in accordance with God's revelations to you. Do not follow their wishes and beware lest they divert you from some of God's revelations to you. If they turn away, then know that God wills to punish them for some of their sins. Indeed, many people are wicked. Is it the laws of the days of ignorance that they seek to uphold? Whose law is better? than God's for those who have attained certainty. God is warning us, don't make the same mistakes of the Jews and Christians in the past, who God gave them the best commandments, gave them the scripture, yet they chose to uphold the laws of men. They chose to follow other than God's laws. They fabricated sources. The Jews created the Talmud. The uh, Christians created the church fathers. And the Muslims, the masses, created the Hadith and Sunnah. These are not God's revelations. Anyone who judges by this, according to God, is a disbeliever, is unjust, and is wicked. So this was severely problematic for traditional Muslims, the Sunnis, because according to the Quran, if you judge by any other source other than God's revelations, again, you're a disbeliever, you're unjust, and you're wicked. And these verses call out the Christians and Jews for doing just that for setting up other sources beside the scripture that was given to them that have no authority. Now, what's interesting is, obviously, the Sunnis saw this as a problem. So starting with Imam Shafi, who died around the year 204 Hijra, he created this narrative that the Hadith is divine revelation, Wahi. He did this by reinterpreting the word Hikmah used in the Quran to claim that this was in reference to the Hadith. Except prior to him and his contemporaries, none of the scholars held this understanding. In the book, Hadith as Scripture, Discussions on the Authority of Prophetic Traditions, on page 41 it reads, The interpretation of Hikmah as Sunnah is central to Shafi's argument. In examining Quran commentaries that predate or are contemporary with Shafi in his work in the Risala, where he presents the same line of argument, Lowry finds, 
that with the exception of Abdul Razak, who is a contemporary of Shafi, no one interprets the word hikmah as sunnah. And then the author continues, says, my own investigation of early Quran commentaries reveals much the same thing. However, the commentary of Hud ibn Mumakam does address the question of hikmah and sunnah. Hud ibn Mumakam was a Kharijite commentator who lived during the middle or late 3rd, 9th century, commenting on verses such as 62.2, which mention the book and the wisdom. He says, some of them say the book is the Quran and the wisdom is the sunnah. The wording that Ibn Mumakam uses suggests that there was disagreement about the interpretation of hikmah as sunnah in the generations following Shafi. This, together with the paucity of earlier evidence for that idea, suggests that it was not a common interpretation before al-Shafi's careful and forceful articulation. So to summarize, the argument is that prior to Shafi, no one was making the argument that the hikmah was the sunnah, that this was a later innovation that they created that people have accepted to date. They think that that's how it was always understood. But Shafi had to make this argument because without it, he couldn't use prophetic hadith as a source of law, which is cornerstone to his understanding. Now, another way we can prove this is we can show historically that prior to Shafi, most scholars of their time did not treat the hadith specifically the prophetic hadith, is divine law, but at best as just opinion that should be taken into consideration in rulings. A prime example of the evolving attitudes towards hadith can be seen in the practices of the early Islamic scholars and founders of the major schools of thought. Abu Hanifa, who uh, died in the year 150, so the year Shafi was born, Abu Hanifa died, was known for his minimal use of hadith. And we talked about this in a previous episode, but this was also the reason that individuals like Bukhari went hard after Abu Hanifa because he wasn't holding up the Hadith as a source of religious law. Similarly, Malik ibn Anas, Imam Malik, also demonstrated less reliance on Hadith compared to later scholars. And Imam Malik had the Muwatta, which is the first compilation of Hadith. And the Muwatta, depending on which transmission you're looking at, because we have about 16 different transmissions of it that vary in length, it has about 1,720 narrations. Now, what's interesting is from the 1,720 narrations, only 527 are prophetic hadiths. 613 are statements from the companions, and 285 are from successors, and the rest are Malik's own opinions. So the fact that less than a third of the hadith, of the muwatta, actually prophetic hadith, shows the reliance on hadith was much less. And Imam Malik, he died in the year 179. So Shafi was only 19 years old when Imam Malik died. And if we look at the work from uh, Imam Malik, we see that he did not treat the prophetic hadith as these are uh, de facto religious laws. He saw this more in the case of like, these are opinions, this is case law. And oftentimes he might go with what the uh, uh, the companion said, you know, predominantly that of Abu Bakr, uh, Uthman, uh, uh, Omar. He would see what they ruled. And he also had another metric, which was what were the people in Medina doing, right? Because he was living amongst the descendants of the companions. So he says if they're doing something, it probably came from somewhere. So he did not hold up the prophetic hadith as if this is divine law. He just viewed it as something to take in consideration when making his rulings. 
And this poses a very stark question for traditionalists, that if Muhammad was the ultimate interpreter of God's will, as was understood in later generations of Sunnis, why would a scholar like Imam Malik so infrequently rely on his words, the Prophet's words, in his collection for his legal rulings? This shows that they did not treat the Prophet's words as divine revelation. So it's clear that the earlier madhabs, that of Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, did not treat the prophetic hadith as divine revelation. Now funny enough, if you read the hadith itself, it says repeatedly that the only divine revelation of wahi that the Prophet left was the Quran. So in Bukhari 3047 it says, I asked Ali, do you have any knowledge of any divine inspiration, wahi, besides what is in Allah's book? Ali replied, no. By him who split the grain of the corn and creates the soul, I do not think we have such knowledge, but we have the ability of understanding which Allah may endow a person with, so that he may understand the Quran. And then it also talks about this, this piece of paper which we discussed in a previous episode. In another narration, this is in Bukhari 5019, it's the same narration, it says, Did the Prophet leave anything besides the Quran? He, Ali, replied, he did not leave anything except what is between the two bindings of the Quran. So in this narration, they're asking Ali, did he, you know, did the Prophet leave anything else aside from the Quran? And his answer is like, no, it's just this Quran. But it continues. It says, then we visited Muhammad bin al-Hanafiyah and asked him the same question. He replied, the Prophet did not leave except what is between the bindings of the Quran. So in these multiple hadith, and there's more of them, they ask, you know, does, is, did the Prophet leave any other wahi, any other divine uh, inspir inspiration? And their answer, no, it's just this Quran. Now what's funny is in the hadith, there's another one where the Prophet, according to Bukhari, informs his followers what to do if they disagree regarding an interpretation of the Quran. And the answer was not to consult the hadith and the sunnah. So this is Bukhari uh, number 7364. It says, Allah's Messenger said, Recite the Quran as long as you are in agreement as to its interpretation and meanings. But when you have differences regarding its interpretation and meanings, then you should stop reciting it for the time being. So it's funny that, you know, in this hadith, his response was not, hey, go consult the hadith and the sunnah. Uh, it was saying, look, read the Quran, and as long as you're in agreement, keep going. And if you don't, take a break. So this whole concept that the Prophet was spewing out you know, wahi, in addition to the Qur'an, that was supposed to be upheld as a source of law beside the Qur'an, has no foundation even in their own hadith. And even in their history books, you know, we see this repeated, where we see that the earliest Muslims condemned such secondary sources of laws. One of the best examples of this is Umar, the second caliph, who in the Sunni's own history books is depicted as being staunchly against hadith. In the uh, Bukhari 114, it reads, Ibn Abbas said, When the ailment of the Prophet became worse, so this is the Prophet is on his deathbed, he said, Bring for me paper. I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. But Umar said, The Prophet is seriously ill, and we have got Allah's book, and Allah's book is sufficient for us. So this is very interesting. In their own hadith, when the Prophet's on his deathbed saying, hey, give me a piece of paper, I will write for you something that you will not go astray. The response from Omar was that they have the Quran and the Quran is sufficient for them. Additionally, it's reported that during the, his reign, Omar did not allow the Prophet's companions 
to travel freely without his permission because he did not want them to propagate Hadith. It wasn't until the reign of Uthman that this ban was lifted and the companions were allowed to emigrate to some of the newly conquered regions. And he's even accounted for jailing people for spreading Hadith. In one narration, says Umar detained Ibn Masud and Abu uh, al-Darada uh, and uh, Abu Masud al-Ansari, saying to them, You have narrated Hadith abundantly from the Messenger of Allah. It is reported that he had detained them in Medina, but they were set free by Uthman. And in the uh, history of Tabari, we read, uh, this is volume 3, page 188, that it says, Umar appointed his governors. He'd go out with them to bid them farewell, saying, I have not appointed you governor over Muhammad's community with limitless authority. I've made you governor over them only to lead them in prayer, to make decisions among them based on what is right, and to distribute the spoils among them justly. I have not given you limitless authority over them. Do not flog the Arabs and humiliate them. Do not keep them long from their families and bring temptations upon them. And do not neglect them and cause them deprivation. Be exclusively devoted to the Quran and diminish the annotations of Muhammad and I am your partner. So here he's calling people out for putting too much emphasis on the, the, uh, the commentary from the Prophet or what, what's being ascribed to him and saying to be devoted exclusively to the Quran alone. And there's a lot more narrations about Umar's stance against the Hadith. Ibn Qutaybah in his book, uh, Tawil Mukhtalaf al-Hadith, uh, he cites how Umar was harsh against those spreading Hadith. And there's another narration where Abu Huraira is asked if he used to narrate as many traditions freely during the reign of Umar. And his reply is no, for if I had tried, Umar would have whipped me. So clearly, uh, Umar was staunchly against this dissemination of the Hadith. He wanted people to be committed 100% to the Quran. And there's one other account I want to bring up uh, regarding uh, Umar's stance on Hadith. It says the Hadith multiplied during the time of Umar. Then he called on the people to bring them to him. And when they brought them to him, he ordered them to be burned. Afterwards, he said, a Mishnah like the Mishnah of the people of the book. So in this narration, Umar is equating the Hadith to the Mishnah, which is where we started this talk that the Sunnis have followed the path of the children of Israel, that they set up a oral law in conjunction with God's written scripture that was never authorized by God. And this goes beyond just uh, parallelisms. People are very unaware the degree of Jewish Talmudic influence that their Hadith corpus contains. The most prolific companion who is attributed with narrating the most Hadith by a wide margin is Abu Huraira, whose name translates as the father of a kitten. Historically, he was believed to have been a companion of the Prophet and is known for having the greatest number of Hadith attributed to him compared to any other companion, despite only being among the Prophet for a couple years before his passing. Abu Huraira has 5,374 unique traditions attributed to him. Also, most people are oblivious that Abu Huraira was heavily influenced by someone by the name of Kab al-Abr. This is Kab the rabbi, who apparently converted to Islam during the reign of Umar. Historically, it's believed that Umar utilized Kab as a prominent position, uh, consulting in, uh, with him regarding matters of the Torah, but then realizes the guy was a complete fraud 
He was just making stuff up. And then also he was influencing Abu Huraira with these false uh, Jewish Talmudic references. And then Abu Huraira was attributing that back to the Prophet. Now, what's interesting is according to the Hadith, there is speculation that Kab was actually behind or was informed regarding the assassination of Umar. And this is because apparently Kab knew exactly when Umar was going to die. And when he was questioned about it, he said, oh, no, the Torah told me. Well, what's more likely that he's, you know, able to have these insights regarding the, from the Torah to Omar's death or that he was part of that whole plot or scheme or at least well informed about it. So Cab's prominence, it diminished uh, after Umar uh, deposed him. But funny enough, during the reign of Mawiyah and the Umayyads, uh, he was held as a high esteem. So in Bukhari 7361, it reads that Ibn Abdul Rahman that he heard Mawiyah talking to a group of people from Quraysh at Al-Madinah. And on mentioning Kab al-Abr, he said, he was one of the most truthful of those who used to talk about the people of the scripture. And indeed, in spite of that, we used to test him for lying. So he's saying that this guy is way more truthful, we, that even if we had any doubt, we still tested him and he still proved to be honest. And as we saw, uh, at the same time, when Mawiyah, the Umayyads gained power, uh, Abu Huraira got a uh, promotion from this. He became the governor of Medina, and his restrictions on narrating Hadith were lifted uh, during Mawiyah and the Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyads used him for their own means and transformed him from this village idiot to someone to be venerated and looked up upon for religious laws and guidance. Rather than having his work discarded as untrustworthy, he is viewed as an authority on the traditions of the Prophet. Roughly 1,034 hadith compiled by Bukhari and 391 from Muslim are from Abu Huraira and are labeled as authentic in Sahih. And here is an example. In Sahih Bukhari 5,355 narrated by Abu Huraira, it says the Prophet said, The best alms is that which is given when one is rich, and giving hand is better than a taking one, and you should start first to support your dependents. A wife says, you should either provide me with food or divorce me. A slave says, give me food and enjoy my service. A son says, give me food, to whom do you leave me? The people said, oh, Abu Huraira, did you hear that from Allah's messenger? He said, no, it is from my own self. So this guy is literally giving statements, claiming that it's from the prophet. And it's not until he's questioned that he's actually admitting, no, this is from myself. This is absurd. This is ridiculous. This is not someone who should be taken as a source of authority. Now, this criticism towards Abu Huraira is nothing new. In the same book, uh, Tawil Muqtalaf al-Hadith from Ibn Qutaybah, uh, it reads, In an audience before the Abbasid Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, the early Sunni Umar ibn Habib responded to Mutazilite and al-Aray arguments regarding the reliability of Abu Huraira and claimed, that if one opened the door to criticizing the companions of the Prophet, Muslims would lose the whole Sharia. So they realized the vulnerability of this guy. But they said, look, we cannot discredit him because if we do, then the entire Sharia, their entire oral law, their entire Hadith corpus goes down the drain. Because so much of their narration is dependent on this one individual known as the father of cats, who was heavily influenced by this rabbi, Kab al-Abr. And between Abu Huraira and Kab al-Abr, they formed a whole series of hadith attributed to the Prophet known as Izriliyat, which are hadith lifted directly from Jewish Talmudic sources. 
And there's numerous examples of this where you can pull up Talmudic sources and Hadith and see that they're verbatim. For instance, many of the dietary prohibitions actually comes from Jewish Talmud. Now to cover his tracks, Abu Huraira created the following Hadith. This is found in Abu Dawood. Uh, 3,662. It says, Abu Huraira narrated, The Prophet said, Relate traditions from the children of Israel. There's no harm. Saying that, oh, it's totally fine. You want to say their nonsensical stories from their uh, Jewish history? Go right ahead. This is the reason we see all kinds of this Talmudic influence and Hadith inside the most revered compilations like Bukhari and Muslim. Now, there's so many of these, I could literally spend hours just reading them. But I just want to give you a little taste of kind of the, the narrations. And again, these are the stuff that you find in Bukhari and Muslim. These are not obscure references. So, for instance, when it says that the children of Israel refused to enter the promised land, uh, according to Hadith, uh, uh, Muslim 3015, it says that the children of Israel, what they did instead was they dragged themselves on their butts, saying a grain in a, a hair, a grain in a hair. What does that even mean? <laughs> There's another narration regarding Moses punching the angel of death. That when the angel of death goes to Moses, uh, Moses punches him and knocks out his eye. And that one is in Bukhari uh, 1339. There's another narration in Sahih Muslim uh, 1654 where the prophet Solomon makes a vow that he's going to have uh, intercourse with his 99 wives of which all of them are going to give him uh, uh, strong warriors to fight in his cause. Except he refuses to say, inshallah, God willing. And because of that, none of his wives have uh, children except for one premature baby. There's another narration. This is in Sahih Muslim 2997 uh, regarding something that was given by Kab. So it says, Abu Huraira reported that Allah's messenger said a group of Beni Israel was lost. I do not know what happened to it, but I think that it underwent a process of metamorphosis and assumed the shape of rats. Don't you see, when the milk of a camel is placed before them, these do not drink. And when the milk of a goat is placed before them, these do drink. Abu Huraira said, I narrated this very hadith to Kab, and he said, Did you hear this from Allah's messenger? I, Abu Huraira, said, Yes. He said this again. And I said, Have I read the Torah? So he's implying that this is inside the Torah, that how else would Abu Huraira know about this information? There's another one. This is just comical. It's that uh, it's a hadith where the prophet supposedly is insulting uh, Hagar. So again, this comes from Jewish Talmud. It says narrated by Abu Huraira. This is Bukhari, two thousand six hundred thirty-five. It says Allah's messenger said the prophet Abraham migrated with Sarah. The people of the town where they migrated gave her Hagar. Sarah returned and said to Abraham. Do you know that Allah has humiliated the pagan and he has given a slave girl for my service? Like they're they're belittling, they're they're echoing this lie that Hagar was the slave girl, right? That she wasn't the princess uh, from Egypt. It's just comical. Now here's a really strange one, okay? And it, these get like super bizarre, but they're they're hilarious. It has to do with someone by the name of Juraj. Okay? Again, narrated by Abu Huraira. Uh, this is uh, Sahih Bukhari uh, 3436. It reads, None spoke, so the prophet said, None spoke in the cradle but three. The first was Jesus. The second was there a man from Beni Israel called Juraj. While he was offering his prayers, his mother came and called him. He said to himself, Shall I answer her or keep on praying? 
He went on praying and did not answer her. His mother said, Oh Allah, do not let him die till he sees the faces of prostitutes. So while he was in his hermitage, a lady came and sought to seduce him. But he refused. This is straight out of Borat. <laughs> so she went to a shepherd and presented herself to commit illegal sexual intercourse with her. And then later she gave birth to a child and claimed that it belonged to Juraj. The people therefore came to him and dismantled his hermitage and expelled him out of it and abused him. Juraj performed the ablution and offered prayer and then came to the child and said, Oh child, who is your father? The child replied, The shepherd. After hearing this, the people said, We shall rebuild your hermitage of gold. But he said, No, of nothing but mud. The third was the hero of the following story. So that was the second person. The hero of the following story. This is the third person who spoke as an infant. It says, A lady from Beni Israel was nursing her child at her breast. When a handsome rider passed by her, she said, Oh Allah, make my child like him. On that, the child left her breast and facing the rider said, Oh Allah, do not make me like him. The child then started to suck her breast again. Abu Huraira further said, As if I were now looking at the Prophet sucking his finger in way of demonstration. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. This garbage comes out of the Jewish Talmud and Abu Huraira is attributing it to the Prophet, saying that he's sucking his finger as if the baby was sucking on the teat of the mom. This is so disgusting on so many levels. And they propagate this garbage as if it's authentic statements from the Prophet. This all comes from the children of Israel. So not only did the Sunni Muslims make the mistake as the children of Israel by upholding secondary oral law like the children of Israel, but they also inserted the exact same Talmudic oral law inside their Hadith corpus. So rather than following the actual path of the Messenger of upholding the Quran, they followed the Sunnah of the Jews. And this is very telling because this is what was prophesied in the Quran when God gave the verse 7138-139 warning us not to make the same mistake. What we find is that Muslims just did not pay attention. They took it hook, line, and sinker. Again, it reads, We delivered the children of Israel across the sea. When they passed by people who were worshipping statues, they said, Oh Moses, make a god for us like the gods they had. He said, Indeed, you are ignorant people. These people are committing a blasphemy for what they are doing is disastrous for them. Yet, what did the Muslims do? The Sunni Muslims did the exact same thing. They did it worse. You know, consider this narrative. After Moses and the children of Israel uh, left Egypt, that they were able to strike on dry land and uh, Pharaoh and his troops were drowned, what happened? What took place? So first they saw this calf that the people were worshipping and they said, hey Moses, make a calf for us like they have. Then it says that Moses rushed to God. Okay, And the word in Arabic for rush is ajal. And when Moses got to God, it reads in Surah 20 verse 83 through 85, says, why did you rush? So again, ajal, away from your people, O Moses. He said, they're close behind my footsteps. And the word for footsteps is athar. I have rushed to you, my Lord, that you may be pleased. He said, we have put your people to the test after you left, but the Sumerian misled them. So I want to focus on this, right? That first they asked Moses for the calf, okay? Then Moses, when he rushed to God, the word is ajal. And when God asked him, 
Where are the children of Israel? He says, they're on my footsteps, right? They're behind me. And the word there is athar. When we continue reading in 2086 through uh, uh, 87, it says, Moses returned to his people angry and disappointed, saying, Oh, my people, did your Lord not promise you a good promise? Could you not wait? Did you want to incur wrath from your Lord? Is this why you broke your agreement with me? They said, we did not break our agreement with you on purpose. We were loaded down with jewelry and decided to throw our loads in. This is what the Sumerian suggested. Now, we said that the word for rush is ajal. Now, the word for a calf is ijal. One vowel mark difference, same root, same three letters. The only difference is, again, ajal versus ijal. And so this is what the Sumerian created. He created an ijal. And then it continues in 2088. He says, he produced for them a sculpted calf, complete with calf sounds. They said, this is your God and the God of Moses. Thus, he forgot. Then, when Moses confronted the Sumerian in 2095 and 96, it says, he said, so Moses is asking, what is the matter with you, O Sumerian? He, the Sumerian, said, I saw what you could not see. I grabbed a fistful of dust from the messenger's footsteps, a thar, and used it to mix into the golden calf. This is what my mind inspired me to do. So I want to highlight the parallels here. Moses ajal to God. He rushed to God. And when questioned, he says, my uh, people are on my footsteps, my athar. The Sumerian built an ijal, a calf. And when he asked what inspired in this, he says, I grabbed a fistful of dust from the athar, the footsteps of the messenger. So what is the, the, the contrast here? What we see is that Moses was focused on God. He was focused on pleasing God. What was the Sumerian and the children of Israel focused on? Their idols. They took the literal footsteps, the athar of the messenger, and they molded it in with their wealth to create their idol. So rather than being focused on God, they were focused on the messenger's footsteps. Now, what are the Sunnis doing? God's messenger gave them a scripture. And rather than being focused on the scripture to please God, they transformed the religion from a religion about God to a religion about the messenger. And what's interesting is, is the word Hadith. So the Hadith corpus actually has other names in addition to Hadith. One of the other names is uh, Akhbar. Akhbar means like a report or news. But in addition, another word that is used for the Hadith corpus is Athar, footsteps. This is also has the meaning of tradition. And you'll see this term used for the Hadith. So the Sunni masses, therefore, have fallen hook, line, and sinker into the same mistake as the children of Israel have made in the past. When the prophet came, he taught the worship of God alone and to uphold the Quran alone. Yet the traditionalists shifted the focus from the Quran and God to the prophet and Hadith. Rather than focusing on what the Quran says, they're interested in what the prophet did. What foot did he step into the bathroom? How did he defecate? How did he urinate? How did he trim his mustache and his beard? This nonsense. How did he eat his dates? How did he wash himself? This has no foundation in the religion. The sole duty of the, the prophet was to deliver this Quran. It's our duty to uphold this Quran. Not these man-made fabrications they call hadith. This oral law that has no foundation in God's religion. And consider Bukhari and other hadith collectors spent their lives collecting the supposed stories from the footsteps of the prophet 
And in doing so, they negated the entire message of the Quran, that the object of worship should always be God alone, that we should not associate anything with God, and that our only source of religious law should be that of the Quran alone. In Surah 43, verse 23, it says, Invariably, when we sent a warner to any community, the leaders of that community would say, we found our parents following certain practices and we will continue to imitate their footsteps. And the same word is used here, athar. So now we have a choice to learn from the sunnah of God or to follow the sunnah of generations of the past who suffered tremendously for their strength. In Surah 35, verse 43, it says, They resorted to arrogance on earth and evil scheming. The evil schemes only backfire on those who scheme them. Then are they waiting except for the sunnah of the past? You will find that God's sunnah is never changeable. You will find that God's sunnah is immutable. We have two choices. We either follow the path of God or any other path is the path of Satan. In Surah 48 verse 23 it says, Such is God's sunnah throughout history and you'll find that God's sunnah is unchangeable. In Surah 40, verse 85, it says, Their belief then could not help them in the least. Once they saw our retribution, such is God's sunnah that has been established to deal with his creatures. The disbelievers are always doomed. Individuals like Bukhari and other hadith collectors are the Sumerian of the Muslim ummah. Their collection of hadith literature is the golden calf that they have produced and the Muslim masses by upholding these books beside that of the Quran are setting up a rival with God and his scripture. In Surah 6 verse 112 through 116 it reads, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human and jinn devils, you can think of Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, all the hadith collectors, to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed they would not have done it. You shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them, and thus expose their real convictions. Anyone who upholds other religious laws outside of what's in God's scripture, outside of God's revelations, it's showing that they do not believe in God alone. They do not believe in a hereafter. They're setting up rivals with God. And it continues in 6.1.14 says, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. The only definitive statement we have from the Prophet is the Quran alone. Everything else is just pure conjecture. This is the reason that the Quran is our only source of religious law, because you cannot base law on conjecture. Law has to be definitive. And it's only the Quran that we can say definitively was given to the Prophet, that this was the transmission given from God to the Prophet that we have with us today. The Prophet of God came and delivered God's final scripture to mankind. It contains everything we need in order to be redeemed back to God's kingdom. In Surah 18 verse 54 it says, We have cited in this Quran every kind of example, but the human being is the most argumentative creature. God has blessed the Arabs by sending his final prophet to them and revealing his final scripture, the Quran, in their language. 
Yet they have taken this blessing of uh, having this messenger and turned him into an idol to rival God. And thus they're following the same sunnah of those in the past who set up rivals to rival God's scripture. They have transformed the religion from the messenger's religion dedicated to God alone to a religion about the messenger. And in Surah 25, verse 27 through 30, it reads, The day will come when the transgressor will bite his hands in anguish and say, At last, I wish I had followed the path with the messenger. At last, woe to me, I wish I did not take that person as a friend. He has led me away from the message after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. If you want to follow the path of the messenger, the way we do that is by following the Quran alone. Notice the prophet does not say, my, my people have deserted my hadith, my sunnah. No, what they deserted is the very thing that his sole mission was to deliver, which was the Quran alone. And I just want to end with one quote. This is from uh, Frederick Hegel. It says, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. God willing, we're going to end there. Let's not make the same mistakes as the Muslims have done in the past. Let's stick wholeheartedly to the Quran alone. Let's not set up some secondary source beside the Quran, something that is not authorized by God, that has no authority. Because the second we start upholding some oral law in addition to what's in the Quran, then we're going to fall the exact same trajectory of the communities of the past who failed this very fundamental test. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, please join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. Uh, if you want to follow along the verses of the uh, Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want notes from today's talk, uh, you can go to Quran Talk blog. There you can get notes from this discussion as well as, you know, numerous other topics. And if you want more up-to-date uh, updates, please uh, subscribe to my Twitter at TalkQuran. And until next time, Peace and God bless.